0: Nelson Mandela had so much compassion for his brothers and sisters.
1: People don't realize it's about the Beatles, that they knew they were brilliant. One
2: story in every human being that defines who you are. Do
0: we film on a volcano
3: that's just about to explode? But the reason this mail pack has been astoundingly successful is because there are pictures of rabbits on the envelope.
2: I mean, I think there's something about chaos, right? It Either, either you... Run from it or you run towards it. And for me, there was really this instance of wanting to run towards it.
3: So uh, welcome to Great Minds. We have our first returning guest today, uh, Claudia Romo Edelman, who was in episode one of season one, uh, and uh, Richard Edelman. And this is our first time doing a, a couple. Uh, and I think the opportunity we have here to talk about your experience in quarantine, what you're both doing, obviously from a business vantage point and the chance to talk to you about, you know, what is being done right now, what needs to be done, um, whether you're a brand or whether you are an advocate, uh, for a a part of the population that needs advocacy. Um, I think there's a lot of timely and topical things to talk about. But we're going to go back at the beginning, Richard, because uh, uh, I can't not ask you about Ruth Ann and about Daniel. Mm. And that's where I'd like to start and hear your thoughts when you hear the names of your parents.
1: We do things differently. We're a, a, a clan of our own. You know, my dad
3: and mom both actually grew up during the Depression. We don't
1: have people who are just here to paste the clippings or to. Uh, run over to the newspaper with a release, Uh, you have a chance to demonstrate your capabilities from day one. This is an entrepreneurial place for everybody. And and he always wanted to uh, do better than the other guy. His whole life was spent accumulating information, honing it, and making sure that his company did it.
2: Dan always had this brown leather, hard-sided briefcase with him and it would be on his lap, the top up, and
1: his hands would be hidden behind. So he'd be asking questions and taking notes all at the same time.
3: One of my first encounters with Dan was to go into a meeting and realize I needed a notebook and I needed to be taking notes.
2: You never show up to any meeting without a notebook and a writing utensil.
1: And so I brought a pen. He caught me once like, taking notes on my BlackBerry. That totally frustrated him. Because in the relaying of the notes, you're controlling the future. He would take notes. And then he would take a- notes on his notes and underline the notes. And then, you know, he was Phi Beta Kappa in college. And, uh, you know, my mom was a character like no other. Just, she was Facebook before there was such a thing. She would call around Chicago as soon as she'd get up and she knew every bit of news by eight in the morning. So it was pretty funny.
3: Fantastic. And I know you joined your dad's firm in about 1978, but it was not a given that you were going to. Had you accepted a job or were about to accept a job elsewhere?
1: Yeah, I was uh, all set to go work as an assistant product manager at Playtex um, because I had worked for Swifton company the summer before and it was owned by the same holding company and I'd done a good job, and I was going to be a junior product manager in Stanford, Connecticut, and my dad had an offer to be acquired by DDB Advertising. He didn't want to do it, um, and he called me at B-School in uh, April, and he said, you know, um, son, I, I'd like you to come work at Edelman for a year. Um, if you don't like it, you're a Harvard MBA. You know, you can go somewhere else, and um, so uh, here I am 42, almost 43 years later, Um You know, and the business has really grown substantially, and we worked together very happily for 35 years.
3: Fantastic. And Claudia, I know from our previous conversation how influential your parents were in shaping you, and I love the story that you told us, which is on the the first episode of your experience uh, as a young girl during the time of the earthquake. (laughs) when um when
2: you are in a situation like that um, you know like everybody was at least at least in the community where i was the you know like the south of mexico was literally destroyed and so the first the first earthquake Um, resulted in a number of our, our neighbors' houses and buildings being destroyed. And everybody was out scared of the second and second, second and third. But the most important part that I think happened was that, um, every, there was a collective panic. Literally the entire city could not sit anymore or be in a street. You know, like if you were in your car, the earth was shaking and it was quite hard. And we did not know where our friends or family were all the time. The communication was broken. So everybody became a volunteer one day after the other. We had to shelter for a week or because we were scared that our the neighborhood but us was actually going to hit again. And I, I think that there is math. One story in every human being that all all, it's like almost you can go back to that defines who you are and what you Mm. do, and that was mine.
3: And uh, here we are now in the midst of another earthquake of a different kind. You've been touched by it very personally. I know your mom has had some challenges with the coronavirus. Can you tell us how she's doing and how you've managed? Forget about as a business person, but as a daughter dealing with that from thousands of miles away.
2: Uh, So, today is uh, one month since my mom went to the hospital uh, and was found COVID, uh, having a really bad uh, background of pneumonia and arrhythmia. So, she was a perfect target to not have this. Uh, She's been a month there and she's a fighter. She's, uh, you know, like with a ventilator in uh, intensive care for the last. Ten days, I would say, but she keeps on giving a fight, and that she's—that's what she taught me to be a fighter and never give up. And there's um, there's the other uh, story that I think that has shaped my life, and I think that everybody has one or two stories that really they can go back to and that represent who they are and what they do right now. And the second story I have is that my parents had three kids; two of them died at the age of 18 months. And I was pretty, uh, you know, like I was, I grew up in a microscope pretty much with everybody waiting for me to, you know, like to die pretty well. Uh, And, but that sense, uh, you know, like of seeing me always gave me uh, that feeling of, wow, wait a second. So you're not dying. You must be, you know, like you're really strong. Actually, you're stronger than death. And. You know, like if you were, so I grew up with a feeling that everything is possible, that if I'm able to beat up death, uh, nothing is really that hard and that you can keep on fighting and trying and that there must be a reason why, Uh, you know, like, so I I have that feeling that the world is malleable and is doable. And that's why I'm not giving up on hope uh, for my mom and for everybody that is going through this so that. We can take this and, and know that we will come out of it. And ideally, we can come out of it stronger.
3: Exactly. Well, listen, we say, I say a little, I'm not a, I'm not a great believer in prayer, but I say a little extra one for your mom every night. Thank and, you. And uh, we're hoping for the best. Thank you. So you're both world travelers. You're both in the company of a lot of uh, people from all over the world, diplomats, people in the NGOs, the UN world, the World Economic Forum world. What unites all of those worlds that you two navigate so brilliantly and seamlessly is you are in the company of leaders. And if there is one thing that seems to be crystal clear uh, at this particular moment in time globally is recognizing the importance of leadership when we have it and when we don't. Richard, if our president was your client, what advice would you give him?
1: So the president has done some things well. He speaks frequently. Um, he has, on many occasions, brought Dr. Fauci along um, as an expert. Um, where I think he falls short is he freelances and has too many um, uh, speculations um, about what possibly could. It's just being in a brainstorming. As opposed to presenting a finished idea, and I would never go to a pitch with a client without having finalized my thought. Um, You know, you don't need to see the sausage making; you need to see the product in the end. And so, um, you know, you can contrast this to um, Governor Cuomo, who is empathetic, is frequent, um, but also uh, fact-based and um, has a uh, more Kind of I guess reasoned uh, approach, you can't be emotional when you're a leader and, and, and if you do this for for corporations at the moment, uh, they've got multiple constituencies to think about. They have their employees, they have their customers, they have their shareholders, uh, they have their communities, and I think a mistake by business in the last couple of months has been keeping their head down. I think they've let government lead. It's very rare actually to see business unless. They're asking for government loans or explaining layoffs. And I think, again, this is true for brands. Brands have to be part of the discussion. To do a blackout right now to say, I don't want to be next to COVID. you know That makes a bad reputation for my brand. Again, that's wrong. You should somehow make your business about solutions and not selling. Be sure that you are on the side of the people and that they understand that you have a long-term interest in what happens in this society. People have long memories about people mistakenly or wrongly taking bailout funds or things like this. Because I remember back to 2008 who did that. And so uh, consumers will reward those um, who have brands that act on their behalf. You know, it's something as simple as Dove giving you hand washing instructions. Um, But it's also Unilever extending credit um, for its suppliers and and also for its vendors. I mean, a small business person, a Hispanic, owning a small store now can pay Unilever in 90 days instead of paying in 45. That's actually acting like a bank. That's leadership.
3: Claudia, one of the other things that we're seeing now is international institutions being tested in the spotlight, organizations most prominently like the WHO.
1: We have therefore made the assessment that COVID-19 can be characterised as a pandemic. Pandemic is not a word
2: to use lightly or carelessly. It's a word
1: that if misused, can cause unreasonable fear or unjustified acceptance that the fight is
3: over, leading to unnecessary suffering and death. And what we've learned here, again, is that we are all connected. We are all in this together, that uh, whether it's something that appears on social media that's harmless, or whether it is a deadly virus, it knows no boundaries. Give us your sense as to the toughness of these global institutions and NGOs to help get us through this and to help make sure that we don't end up in this situation again?
2: Um, I I was actually, just like a couple of uh, hours ago, I was with the United Nations having a conversation about how important it is uh, to react promptly in an agile way, to something that they have the memory, they have the physical memory. If there is one institution that has been dealing with that, you know, the harshness, it is the United Nations and organizations like WHO has more experience on pandemics than any other organization that, that that is trying to come to this. So they know the patterns, they have the the, the scale up, they just need to get to the agility uh, to make sure that they uh, work if in conjunction uh, with governments and different stakeholders. So I think that one of the one of the real tests out there is whether organizations like the United Nations will become even more relevant and frameworks like the Sustainable Development Goals will become more like the solutions uh, for issues uh, in the future or less. And, uh, and I think that I absolutely, truly, 100% believe that the Sustainable Development Goals, those master plan uh, for the people uh, and the future of the people and the planet should be implemented to avoid even more, uh, you know, like a, a next pandemic, a next hit of anything we're doing. If we would be able to implement the plan by doing that in partnership with governments and organizations, I think that we would be in a better shape. The uh, the problem right now, I think that, uh, that has, organ- like an organization like WHO, is that they cannot command or order uh, governments or any other person to take an action. They can guide, uh, they can guide actions. And I think that the relevance depends on the the capability and the success that they having in guiding governments to take action. And I can testify, like, for example, in Latin America, should they have been prepared earlier, should have they seen the best practices and followed the guidelines earlier, they prepared. you know, like, they, they would have been better prepared to something that they knew was coming. So I really hope that, uh, I really hope that the UN and other institutions really uh, get more support as opposed to less. Uh, This is not the time to be uh, testing, uh, you know, like in a crisis, this is not the time to be testing whether the boat can be shaped up or not. We are in a storm and we should actually cross uh, cross to the shore. And once we're on the other side, we can start looking at reform and other things.
3: I think few people understand the connection Between the sustainable development goals and how something like the situation we're in now, how that they're connected. There is
0: among our general population a genuine compassion towards those in need. There is a recognition of the grinding poverty that so many experience every day around the world. And yet, sometimes it's said that our efforts to combat poverty and disease do not and cannot work. That there are some places beyond hope that certain people and regions are condemned to an endless cycle of suffering. Here, today, we put those myths to rest. Today, we set aside the skepticism and we lift up the hope that is available to us through collective action.
3: Talk about that and talk about the importance of, once we get past this, refocusing on those goals and, of course, the issue of sustainability.
2: But the thing is, and Richard and I, and I, I love actually the opportunity to have this podcast together because I think that this quarantine has helped uh, us not only at the personal level, but professionally to have like a deeper understanding and deeper analysis of things. I think that this is a time in which you start looking and putting things together. So we speak a lot about this, uh, about these issues, but all together, we're we're not in the same boat here we're in the same storm and some people have a better tool to navigate this and this is becoming every time more clear uh, you can see that for some people that have a, a health insurance that have you know like healthcare that have the opportunity to have you know like some savings this is something that is more durable than for others where you know like closing a school means that my kid is not going to be able to have access to a lunch and that there's all these inequalities that are sort, you know, like coming uh, coming to uh, to service. So it is uh, pretty much uh, uh, an opportunity to do a, if not, if not a hard reset, it is an opportunity to support those that needed most today that having abandoned by those systems. Uh, that I think that should be questioned uh, before we come back to normal. And those systems, you know, like give us an opportunity to start rethinking. What What is the real role for education for all? How are we going to make sure that we use technology to reach those that that don 't have it now uh, and so I think that the principle of uh, the principle of the sustainable development goals is really a good framework to for us to start looking at how do we build back better and faster?
3: Terrific, Richard. One of the many things that I admire about you is that you are very often a man who is first to an issue. Um, you were you know, among the leaders in recognizing long ago how prevalent social media was going to be and how that was gonna shape the world and shape imagery for your clients. You were also very early to the dance on a thread that Claudia was just talking about as it relates to our big institutions globally, which is the issue of trust. Let's talk about how important trust is and where, who we believe, why we believe. You know, you've got this odd dichotomy where uh, on, you know, some of the news channels, they're talking about the WHO in very disparaging terms. And then you've got that night, a concert with people like Bruce Springsteen and Dave Grohl and, and others, you know, doing huge fundraiser, Lady Gaga, for the WHO and raising companies like IBM and many others, stepping up and raising, I think, somewhere around $130 million in just one night. Talk about how important and how trust has really moved in a way that is more resonant than ever before to the front burner.
1: So, Matt, I think that trust uh, actually started out as something conceptual. And um, Francis Fukuyama, 20-plus years ago, um, actually talked about uh, trust as a means of increasing um, velocity in your economy and that uh, you know somehow America was more a trusting country because they had a legal system and, and and others that you know had it more based on custom and then what's happened is that it's become something quite central to the purchase proposition we can demonstrate that um, trust is a you know, along with price and quality, um, do you trust the supply chain? Do you do you trust how they treat their employees? Do you do you trust that they're being fair to consumers? These are all um, bars um, that uh, brands have to jump over. Um, but also, companies are actually only able to get the most qualified people to work there if they are trusted employers. If they are seen as decent and fair and you know inclusive um, and beyond that um, trust is an urgent uh, part of the process of new business and, and new product development because in many cases um, it requires some sort of government um, oversight so if you're in tech um, and you've got a new product that may have a privacy issue you know do i basically give them the benefit of the doubt or do i not and more or less, um, trusted companies have a much better ability to innovate. Uh, So for us, we also now have proven that uh, trusted companies recover faster from crises. Um, United Airlines two years ago uh, with Dr. Dow and be able to come back from that. And similarly, they're higher rated in the stock exchange. They are 5 to 7% higher rated, um, just on an ordinary basis as an investment. So from every aspect, trust has become a central proposition for for business and for brands. And I actually think that we actually have a a measurement scheme now called Edelman trust management. It's across four variables. It's ability, dependability, integrity, and purpose. And what we find in looking at institutions um, that in fact, business is deeply uh, able, but not so much with integrity. And, uh, Up until this crisis government had neither ability nor uh, integrity Um, and so basically it's a framework to have brands and companies be able to look at themselves um, with various stakeholders
3: and what about trust of these big global institutions the un the who where do you think we stand and how do they uh if someone's a little shaky how do, how do they earn that trust? How do they keep it? And, you know, what are your thoughts on those groups?
1: Well, actually, I can tell you, um, this may stun you, but the, the UN is more trusted than most governments in the world.
2: Why would it be most? Of course you expect that. No, <laughs> well, because you're in the United States.
1: Um, and, you know, there's different views about the UN in the United States. But the reality is it's seen as, you know, bipartisan and not in favor of one or other group. Um, yes, governments in China, India, et cetera, have higher trust um, in their own government than the UN. But more, more alar- by and large, otherwise the UN is high. Um, the WHO has quite um, has lower figures than the UN, um, which should recover in this crisis, but haven't um, actually. And it's a disappointment that mm-hmm. um, it hasn't. Um, and Again, politics does play some role in how the WHO is perceived. But also, Matt, I mean, like just in terms of
2: trust in a time of crisis changes rapidly, right? Like there is like variation yeah. of trust depending on where, where do you trust, how do you trust, how much, and so you 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 cannot trust trust this time around.
1: Well, you can get bubbles um, up or down um, after elections and, and during crises. People get panicky. And they grab onto the first lifeboat, and they put a lot of, uh, of their reliance in, in the lifeboat. Um, but you know, over time, um, these things even out, and we find more or less that business has been the most trusted institution, followed by NGOs with government and media lower. But I think that's a very um, mobile kind of uh, statistic at the moment, because, in fact, this great shock of the last months has seen government come to the fore.
3: So, Claudia, I'd love to talk about a part of the population that has been hit particularly hard by the virus. And there's all kinds of data about the number of uh, folks in hospitals that are of Hispanic descent, that are of African-American descent, You were about to launch and have had to change your launch plan for the biggest campaign this country has ever seen uh, called Hispanic Star. And I'd love for you to, you know, talk about the campaign in general and how you've had to adjust your plans and why advocacy for the Hispanic population is more important than ever before.
2: Right, and I was so happy. Actually, last time that I was with you doing a podcast, we were about to launch this campaign uh, because what, like, just like to set the, the, the facts straight, Hispanics are huge, but are not seen. Uh, uh, they're powerful, but they are seen weak. They are massive, but they are seen small. And so there's a huge perception issue uh, it's sort of like a reverse marketing problem that Hispanics have. Being massive, sixty million people, eighteen percent of the population, twelve percent of the GDP, one point seven trillion dollars in purchasing power, young, vibrant—you know—like there's there's no way that you can grow uh, if you're a company or a brand in, in in America if you don't tap into the Hispanic. Uh, community. Hispanics are growth, the fastest growing, the most profitable, and yet not seen, not heard, not valued. So we were launching this uh, Hispanic Star campaign in order to unify pretty much like the rainbow for the LGBTQ. We had the White Sox Stadium. We were launching with the MLB uh, singing the national anthem in Spanish that President Roosevelt commissioned in 1945, and boom, three weeks before that, COVID happens. And we realized there was no time to shine, there was no time to change perception. It was the time to survive. So we had to move uh, this Hispanic star campaign that we were working for in eight months, a multi-million dollar campaign, a donation from WPP, and thousands of different partners involved. Uh, we had to shift it around. and so we said like either we wait until there's a better time to launch or we mobilize. And we change it and we adapt. So we moved it to, uh, to, to help Hispanics and mitigate the economic impact of COVID in Hispanics, particularly small businesses, entrepreneurs and independent workers. So we moved it from Hispanic stars to Hispanic stars in action. And we launched a, uh, a Hispanic response and recovery plan because united, we have to come up with a plan to take action today to mitigate the impact Uh, in those affected, which are disproportionately the largest group in America, Matt. So if I may, just in terms of numbers, uh, there is a confusion, and I don't want to pick too much on it, but Hispanics are the most affected of all communities in America as a group in three three areas. One, at the health level, the highest mortality rate. There's no way, there's no other group that has been so affected at the mortality rate in, in New York only. 34% of all debts are Hispanics. And if you extrapolate that, that makes it in the country 25%, uh, which is the largest. Uh, Economically, our small businesses and entrepreneurs have been sacked, have lost their income, their jobs, or their contracts, because we massively work in those industries that have been affected the most. Uh, The service economy, like, like farming, gig economy, sharing economy, restaurants, hotels, everyone that has been closed, we are the ones that are working in those areas. So we we, we really have lost 50% of Hispanics have someone in their household with a pay cut or lost their job. That's half of 60 million Hispanics. That's massive. Um, Unemployment, 25% faster, you know, flaming. And because we're small businesses and entrepreneurs, that's a huge loss for America. 10% of the GDP depends on this group. The other thing is that we're disproportionately exposed. We are the ones that are running the country pretty well. 19 million Hispanics are working in essential functions. So um, in food supply, in healthcare, in truck distribution, we're the ones driving, you know, driving the cars that deliver your food, uh, the farmers and so on. And the problem about that disproportionality is that it's invisible. So if we don't know that we have such a big problem, we cannot find those solutions to address the problem. So that's why we launched this national anthem uh, video to kick off a series of activations to make sure that we uh, incentivize corporate American brands to take action so that we can not only elevate the problem of like, wow, Hispanics need a hand, but also to start giving them jobs, get them to supply chain, get them, you know, like get them, hire them uh, as independent workers as much as we can. So take positive action towards this community. As Richard always says, and and he's been a hero in all this, not only with my mom, but also in this turnaround business, my mentor number one, um, is that demand will come back. And if you don't have the supply, you will have a bigger problem. So it's, 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 it's in the interest of everybody that we have corporate American brands activating in favor of those that have been affected most that will recover the fastest later.
3: And, and this is not just a social fabric issue, but this is a business issue totally. and ultimately a business opportunity when you look okay. at the spending power of the Hispanic market.
2: Yeah, absolutely. One like there is there is a there, there are the numbers uh, that speak on on the wrong right. Like at the end of the day, if you have seven hundred billion dollars in sales that are produced by small businesses, it's in our interest to make sure that those small businesses can be incorporated into supply chain, can be seen, can be incorporated at the local level, so that we can restart. We have one day, um, one day that we're following, um, you know, like Unilever, Richard. Uh, Rich and I have this joke about like my Fabian so Fabian uh, Garcia who's the CEO of Unilever North America uh, is a Hispanic and uh, you know like I know him and I you know like and then we have this fight about because he's his client and he's also a Hispanic leader so we go to my Fabian but our Fabian Garcia Work with Richard on one activation that we're taking nationally uh, for uh, today to take a day of action, a day of service for anyone that wants to support Hispanics by either donating time or food or money so that we can help this community at large.
3: So let's talk about you talk about Unilever and and we talked earlier a little bit about brands. more than ever before today, it seems getting tone right is awfully important in all brand communications. Richard, talk about how you've been working with your clients, um, either out of a crisis or a mistake or to avoid one and to go on offense to ensure that their communications tonally are on.
1: So mayor, I don't know if you've seen um, something that um, was a compilation of ads from, 10 or 15 different brands, and they all say the same thing. You know, talk about um, our country and, and, and our people and empathy. And you know, I think that people are smart and they want to hear what the company's doing, not who they're honoring. And they really want to see substance. And that's why I'm so excited about this uh, day of service for Unilever, where they actually have a uh, day where they're donating $14 million of products, every product made that day on May 21st uh, will go to um, disadvantaged populations. Boxed up by 8,000 people who make them, goes to uh, NGOs uh, and then are distributed. And retail partners, Dollar General, Walmart, et cetera. And that's the kind of idea that I think comes out of um, smart uh, communications firms like ours, that um, uh, imagine something that I call um, earned creative, where its uh, idea of substance, it is actually in a certain way, fast as the news cycle, it's, it's substantive enough to get earned coverage, um, it, it's social by design, and it starts a movement. And somehow, this idea was strong enough for people such as Claudia wanting to tie Hispanics in, um, retailers others adobe um because everybody wants to do something good and we shouldn't just talk about it we should actually do it um because as another example you know edelman's doing pro bono for something called the urban school food alliance do you know that 22 million american kids get their primary nutrition at lunch because they don't go to school having had breakfast and so there's no school now and so um This uh, coalition uh, is uh, popping up tents outside of schools, um, feeding three and a half million kids in Boston and Dallas, et cetera. We've gotten several clients, Barilla and others, to give product and give money. and, and, And so that's what we all should be doing.
2: And Matt, just on that, I, on the tone... And and I wanna give a big thank you to you, uh, to you who have been like a great partner in providing visibility for efforts like ours, what World Human is doing through the Hispanic Star and the Hispanic Response and Recovery Plan. What I have uh, seen, thanks to efforts like yours, is that there's a lot of companies that want to do, that are willing to get involved, that want to be part of a movement or an action plan that is positive, that is optimistic, that is moving from fear to action, from fear to hope, that we're not going to be knocking that the door saying, like, how is it that you're not giving? It's like on the contrary, this is the opportunity for us to, you know, like take hold hands and cross this, uh, cross this storm together that we're gonna get faster uh, forward, but that we will have that loyalty of this consumer of the employee. And I've seen an incredible amount of uh, support, I think, Uh, by people that want to be part, that want to tell their employees, their consumers, and their communities that they care. So I am very enthusiastic, and I am very grateful for platforms like yours that is allowing um, efforts like ours uh, to be seen, heard, and valued, and to invite other brands to join, to say, like, this is a time, actually, to demonstrate that you care. This is not the time to sell only. This is the time to solve together.
1: And, you know, man, I think it's really smart that... um you've set up this podcast as part of what you're doing more broadly about advertising because there's such a dearth of quality information. You know, the mainstream media is seen as politicized, you know, MSNBC on the left, Fox on the right, Um, literally 30% of Republicans trust media, 67% of Democrats, they see it as the last retaining wall of of hope. Uh, But it's part of what brands should do is be quality information source. And in a way, that's what you're doing is giving people valuable uh, data so that they can improve what they do. Because no one believes something the first time he or she sees it anymore. They have to see it in five or six different places. And it, you're sort of articulating your mind all the time about who's telling me the truth. And if I get it on social, literally, people spread rumors about, well, if you have ice cream, it makes your throat cold and makes it open to COVID. That is such a joke, but it gets around because it sounds like something interesting. And fake news is shared 10 times more often than um, true news, the news that's truthful. And that's a fact. And so therefore, we all have to be in the business of being our own media companies in a way and yeah. helping, helping the mainstream media get quality information to people so they can make good decisions.
3: Amazing. And some of these statistics are startling. I mean, 44%, you know, are not believing it. Oh, I saw when the governor of Georgia, you know, made the uh, decision, let's call it a decision, uh, uh, to reopen his state, that 80% of the people in hospitals in Georgia are black. And you have to ask the question here, you know, is race and racism... Uh, a big variable in a lot of these decisions.
1: So Matt, I would like to think that America is better than that, um, that it's habit as opposed to explicit. And we have to change their habits. We have to make people think uh, at brands that it's completely unacceptable that that only 10% of the brand communications channels are multilingual. You know, for the Unilever campaign, we're doing An English language and Spanish language of course um, and you know, by the way many of the NGOs the first cut of of, of NGOs partners were very much focused on the african-american community and it took my bride to say uh, hi um, We need uh, help in in the hispanic community. So we need we need hispanics and african-americans in the marketing decision-making rooms because they know and we are
3: guessing, and right. that's not good. Right. Well said.
2: But but uh, on the racism part, uh, I don't think it is intentional. But sixty six percent of Hispanics, um, not going working from home is not an option. Only sixteen percent of Hispanics are equipped because they have internet to be able to operate from home, either at the school level or at work. Uh, they cannot actually lose two weeks. Uh, without being paid, so they have to go out. So it's not so much uh, in in the case of some of us, it's not so much that, uh, that, you know, like it is racism is like a need, like literally like for uh, mm-hmm. for 50% of Hispanics an unexpected expense of $400 would actually shake them up. Uh, they couldn't take it. So there's there's a the reality as well of like how uh, economically, uh, some people are mega dependent of you know like of, of of getting the economy back.
3: You are both such powerful forces of nature, and I know that you support each other and work each other and give each other advice. But I would love to see the two of you from scratch build and tackle something together, because knowing you as I do, you are two absolute omnipotent forces. And in this case, one plus one would equal a thousand. And there are so many issues that need help, whether it's, you know, addressing the needs of hungry children or, you know, being an advocate for an underrepresented part of the population. But I got to think the two of you, you can tackle anything you put your minds to.
1: Well, that's the sweetest thing you've ever said. Thank you. And um, I always tell Claudia that there's um, no problem, no issue that we can't do together. Um, and, you know, we're kind of an unlikely couple. I'm from Chicago. She's from Mexico, you know, like that. It's kind of, um, now she knows that, that the bears really matter who they are, the bears. Um, but the key point is, um, I think we do want to take on big things. Um, you know, I'm involved now with, uh, the, um, revival of, of, business for Chicago. And a key part of mayor Lightfoot's agenda is, uh, fairness. And um, a key element of that is Hispanics, who are, in fact, a a, a huge population there. And, you know, so Claudia and I are going to work together on that. And um, I'm absolutely behind what she's trying to do with the Hispanic star. And um, she's pushing me on trust. But we'll talk about that issue that we'll find together. Thank you for the prompt. Yeah,
3: I, I I think you'll find it. And uh, well, thanks so much for uh, doing this. It's an absolute joy uh, to see you um, and to get a chance to do this together and to have you back on, Claudia, on Great Minds and to have you with us, Richard. And we'll get you back on. We'll do another episode. We'll go deep on the trust trust barometer and some other stuff. But this was perfect for today's times.
2: Thank you, Matt. I want I want to say to everyone that is listening that you are a true mensch. You're a great friend since you know like since I moved to the states, you've been there, and you're that role model and that friend uh, that I want to have for my life in everything I do. And like really, from us to you, a big, big hug and a big thank you.
0: Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit advertisingweek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. And original music was by Ian Levy.